For those of you who may be newer or joining us for the first time this week, um, we are making our way through a book called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools, uh, this fall in small groups. Some people are reading it individually. um, And there are these study guides uh, by the doors each week as you come in. So I'd encourage you, whether you're doing it as a group or whether you're, you know, looking for a way to kind of continue thinking about and and putting some of these ideas into action, um, those those are there to assist you with that. If you have been following along, you'll know that uh, week seven would have brought us to chapter seven in the book, um, which is all about what what they call praying in the middle voice or or prayers of participation. And in that particular chapter, um, particularly looks at the prayer of Mary uh, that we read in the beginning of Luke's gospel, where where the angel of the Lord appears to her. And she She consents to the work that God desires to do or is already planning to do in her life. She joins in it. um, And and she offers that that prayer of let let it be unto me as you have said. Um, We're actually moving over that chapter, not because it's not important, but actually because I want to come back to it a little bit later and give it some more time um, in our our, um, worship together particularly as we move into the season of Advent at the start of December. So if you're moving your way through that book with a group, um, feel free to to set that chapter aside momentarily and know that we'll come back to it in about three weeks. Um, Mary and and Elizabeth in that story as well have us, have I think a great deal to teach us about prayer. Today though, we're moving into chapter eight, which is all about praying for the lost. And that that word lost is important to kind of unpack or pay attention to. Typically, when we describe something as lost, we describe it in that way because it has value, right? Something's become separated from a person who who values, who places meaning or importance on an object. And and when it's lost, there's a sense of of grief, of, of sadness about that thing having gone missing. However, not, not all of us value the same objects or items in the same way, right? We assign uh, importance to, to different things. Many years ago, when I was in college, I had a summer job working at an Applebee's restaurant. And I was the, the host. You know, you'd come in and I'd make sure you got to the proper table. And one night as I was seating customers at their tables, I found this old, worn out, kind of ratty looking stuffed animal wedged into the seat of one of our booths. And I didn't know who it, who it belonged to or what to do with it. So as I was you know, clearing out one booth and sitting another family there, I set it aside and I showed it to the manager at the end of our shift. And he, you know, he put it in, in some place that he kept lost items. The next day, you know, around lunchtime, a family came into the restaurant hoping to recover their child's lost stuffed animal, which had gone missing during dinner at Applebee's the night before. Or they were hoping that's where they had left it. And they were describing how rough the bedtime uh, you know, hour was the night before. And did we have this stuffy? And, and you know, you can, you can imagine the joy of this, this family when we handed them back the stuffed animal. It was just one of the parents who had come in. 
couple weeks later, we actually received a letter from Applebee's corporate office because this family wrote in and, and expressed how, how much they appreciated the time and attention we had given them and that, that we had helped them with this object. That, that to any of us, if we had seen it, probably wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have kept. We probably would have thrown it aside, thrown it into the garbage. But to them, it was, it was priceless, right? It had great importance, great value to their, their child. Today, as we come to Luke's gospel, we're in Luke's gospel for a third straight week, be in chapter 15. We're encountering a couple of stories that are all about finding lost items, lost things. And I think in in considering these stories about lost objects, we're challenged to consider whether there might also be things of incredible value, incredible importance, right here before us, right in our everyday lives, that have gone missing, but, but perhaps we don't value or assign value to those lost items in the same way Jesus does, or that God might. As we look at this passage together, I think Jesus wants to give us a sense about what he values, what he loves, how perhaps it's become lost, but also for us to to get a sense, maybe to anticipate the incredible joy that might result if it were to be recovered and restored to its place of belonging. Let me pray for us as we look at at Luke 15 together. Lord Jesus, we, we know that you are the good shepherd. We know that you have come to seek and save that which is lost. We know that we are, are never lost to you, uh, even if we have lost our own way. Lord, for those of us who have found, uh, been found by you, um, may we rejoice in that place of belonging. For those who have not yet been found by you, I pray that, that their hearts would know that you see them and are searching for them today. And for those in our lives who are lost to you or, or lost from you in this moment, may May our hearts come to match the way you see and think about them. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts conform to you and be pleasing to you. Grow with the proclamation of your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are in Luke chapter 15. If you're looking at your Bible, it's probably about you know, 80% or better toward the, the back of the book. We're dropping into a section where, where Luke uh, has been describing a number of Jesus' teachings about eating and banqueting. And if you remember back uh, a year or so, a year, a half, year and a half ago, we, we worked our way through Luke's gospel. And, and Jesus not only tells stories about banquets and eating, uh, he's frequently found sitting and eating and sharing meals with people and groups throughout Luke's gospel. So this is an important theme in Luke's gospel. Here, in the the context of a a meal that Jesus is sharing, 
he begins to tell a few stories. Again, stories about things that have gone missing, have become lost. But before we get to the actual stories, Luke wants to give us a couple verses of context. Why Jesus tells these stories and who he thinks needs to hear them most especially. This is Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say that line, this man, in the, the, the most sort of disgusted tone you can muster, okay? This man... Yeah, I hear some, I think we've got a, a future Pharisee over here. Maybe we're all, we've got some potential. Throughout, throughout the Gospels, we see, again, this pattern of, of Jesus sharing meals with people, making friends with people of all different sorts. But increasingly, in Luke's Gospel, the problem is Jesus is making the wrong kinds of friends. Jesus is sitting down with people who've made choices that, that contradict the teachings of the scriptures of Torah. Jesus is getting to know people who are in messy relationships. Jesus is, is drawing near to people with diseases that are at least perceived as contagious and, and dangerous to be around. Jesus is spending time with people who say and do things that, that any sort of self-respecting person would find offensive. And verse 2 tells us that, that while the Pharisees and the teachers of the law knew better than to get too close to these types of people, Jesus is routinely welcoming them, and he's even going so far as to sit down and eat with them. Right? There's nothing quite like sharing a meal, right? to get close to someone, to have proximity, to hear their stories, to see what's going on with them. And the great concern expressed in verse 2 by the Pharisees is not only does Jesus then risk sort of tainting himself by associating with these sinners, tax collectors. That's one risk. The second piece of that, though, is, is maybe Jesus is also risking removing the appropriate shame and reproach they feel should be cast upon these people, right? Jesus may be tainting himself, but also by choosing to do this, is, is Jesus removing kind of the, the appropriate level of disgust we should feel for these people, right? Is he sanctioning their lifestyle, their choices? The dilemma Luke wants to put his finger on here at the start of chapter 15 is that, that Jesus and the Pharisees have a real difference in value, in the value they are assigning to a particular group of people. Who deserves our attention? Who deserves to have our time? Who deserves to have our compassion? Right, to the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, when they see these sinners gathered around the table with Jesus, what they see is a lost cause. 
people that, that either are not safe to be close to, people that are not worth being close to, or people that are, are just simply unrecoverable, right? They're too far gone to spend any more time pursuing. On the other hand, when Jesus sees how lost they are, I don't think Jesus is, is erasing the fact that there are, there are real problems around the table with these sinners and tax collectors. When he sees how lost they are, though, I think Jesus can't help but imagine how amazing, how joyful it would be to participate in their finding, in their recovery, in their restoration. To help the Pharisees recover Jesus' love for lost things, he chooses to spin a couple of stories. And I think both of them, but particularly the first of them, has a carefully chosen teacher, a carefully chosen protagonist that he has selected for these Pharisees. Right? Jesus picks a shepherd to tell a story about. Oh, jump too far ahead here. There we go. Kenneth Bailey is probably one of the, the best teachers on the parables of Jesus. He's, a, he's an American who spent most of his life living in the Middle East, studying uh, the culture there and also the New Testament writings, Gospels. And he says that he thinks Jesus has gone out of his way to tell a story about a shepherd here because it sort of exposes the inconsistencies of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says, on the one hand, these Pharisees were very comfortable telling stories about God as the shepherd of Israel, right? It's, it's in the Old Testament everywhere, right? You've got the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd. The prophets often talk about Yahweh being the shepherd over Israel, caring for the needs of his people, tending to them with compassion. That part was comfortable for them. On the other hand, Bailey points out, when it came to flesh and blood shepherds, real people, their neighbors, the people living you know, beside them, tending to real livestock, making a living at this kind of work, that particular vocation was proscribed by the Pharisees. It was off limits, couldn't do it. It was looked down upon, was looked at with great suspicion. If you were a, a real shepherd, a Pharisee was not going to come anywhere near you. Jesus, I think, is poking at this place of inconsistency in verse 4. By asking them to suppose one of you were a shepherd with a hundred sheep and you lost one of them. Right, Jesus is using this story to help draw them in to someone else's reality, right, to put them into someone else's sandals. Look at the story Jesus tells them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, 
he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What I think Jesus is pointing out here is that when something that matters to us goes missing, we look for it. We search high and low for that thing. Right? And, and what motivates our searching and looking and longing is, is our desire to see that thing restored to the place we know it belongs. Right? Think about when you lose your car keys. Think about when you've lost a book. Think about when you've lost, you know, something that, that's probably trivial, but it mattered to you. And so, you know, you might have spent an hour, you might have spent the better part of your morning looking for it. In this case, what's gone missing is a single sheep, right? Which, depending on, on who you talk to, could seem like a big deal or like no deal, right? It might seem trivial to us. There's, there's 90 more, 99 more of those sheep where that came from. But in this case, to this shepherd, it's a valuable part of the flock. And probably, if you dig back into the context, that sheep probably doesn't just belong to this individual. It probably belongs to his extended family. Possibly that, that herd of 100 sheep might even be part of a, a sort of cooperative uh, group of sheep that are being looked after by a small village. And so when it becomes clear that one of these sheep has gone missing, right, that it may be in harm's way, Right? The desire of that shepherd kicks in. He cares about this. So he's going looking for it. Likely he left the 99 other sheep in the care of, of one of those fellow shepherds, probably a neighbor, because we're told that when he finds the sheep, he brings it back home and the other sheep are there safely being looked after in the village. He leaves those other sheep in the care of another shepherd so that he can give his attention to finding the one that's been lost. And if we imagine the story Jesus describes, it's, it's no easy task, right? First, you have to figure out where the sheep is gone. You have to locate it. You have to get close enough to it to work with it. But then, as, as commentator David Garland points out, often when sheep feel a sense of danger or stress, they will lie down helplessly on the ground, and they will refuse to move. This is a picture I found on the internet. I know, Chris, have you ever encountered this? Yes? Just this morning. Are you, are you talking about sheep, or are you speaking metaphorically for someone else in your pew? Okay. So you can imagine if you find a lost sheep or, or without being found, right, how unlikely it would be for this sheep to just find its way home on its own, right? It's stuck. It doesn't know what to do. It doesn't know how to get out of its predicament. So it just freezes. 
we don't have sheep at home, but we do have a puppy. And our, our dog, Scout, has an electric collar we've put on him so that he, he won't go past the perimeter of our yard. He's done that a few times, and he got a pretty good jolt from the collar. And so now, when we actually want to take him out for a walk in the neighborhood, we're inviting him to go out past the perimeter of the yard. He'll get about halfway down the driveway, and he parks his butt on the driveway, and he puts his heels out. And he won't move. You couldn't drag him with a leash down the driveway. So now, when we want to take him for a walk, we physically have to pick up our 60-pound dog. We have to carry him, you know, about 15 or 20 steps out of the driveway, past the perimeter, put him back down. And then he's like, oh, OK. We're good now, and he, he takes off. In verse 5, Jesus says that when this shepherd discovers where the sheep has gone, and he discovers it in this state of confusion, Jesus says the shepherd joyfully put it on his own shoulders to carry it home. You can imagine, it's hard for me to carry my 60-pound dog 15 steps. Imagine carrying a much heavier animal, you know, miles potentially. This would be tiring, difficult work. But Jesus makes it clear that what motivates that effort is joy, is love. Joy even in the hardship, even in the difficult part of this work. But even more joy, Jesus says, is, is awaiting that shepherd and sheep when they finally return home. Right? The whole village rejoices. Jesus says, in the same way, heaven rejoices when even one lost sinner is recovered. Turns out, that this story is actually about those who are spiritually lost, those who are helpless, those who are afraid to budge. Right? It's, a, it's a story about those who might need others to help locate them, even to, to be part of the difficult work of helping them return home and rediscover their, their place of belonging. And, and all of that tied together is what Jesus describes as repentance, returning, transformation. Right? Repentance is a returning and a recovery of someone who has been lost, but is now found. And Jesus' point again is that if someone is valuable to you, you go after them, you love them. You pursue them. You stay engaged with them. But I think that the problem Jesus is encountering here is that, that the Pharisees are meant to be the shepherds of this flock, of the people of Israel. But when, when those among them have gone off and lost their way and become lost, instead of pursuing them, they've created a label for them. They've called them sinners. And this excuses them from caring any further. It excuses them to, to now keep their distance from this group of lost people. And in doing so, I think Jesus is saying, you're losing some of God's greatest treasures. 
have been assigned for you to love. And Jesus doubles down on this point by telling them a second story in verse 8. Jesus says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp? Doesn't she sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is asking, what has value to us? How willing are we to expend our time, our energy, our effort to recover it? Right, in this second story, Jesus invites these teachers to step again into someone else's position. This time it's it's a woman who could live in any of the villages of Israel. And again, it's someone who lost something that's of debatable value, of debatable importance. Right? To a person of higher status, maybe someone like a Pharisee, losing a, silver, a single silver coin would, would be unfortunate, maybe regrettable, but not all that momentous. There was probably more money to be had, more resources. But for this single woman, her coin represents 10% of her savings, 10% of everything she has. Right? To her, it's essential. To her, it's indispensable. Incidentally, they, they say that that single coin was probably worth about the value of a single head of sheep. Interestingly enough. But again, there's, there's this, this dilemma of a value difference. Does this matter? Is it worth my time? And that perceived value or lack thereof dictates the response. Right? For this woman, she will spend her whole morning, maybe her whole day, sweeping, searching, scouring her home, because she knows that with time and persistence, that coin could be recovered. And what keeps her going, again, Jesus says, is, is the anticipation of the joy in finding it, in recovering it. What about you and I? Do we see those who are lost to God as valuable? Do we care about them? Can we imagine their recovery? Are we willing to go out and be with them and to be part of the finding? Part of, of maybe even moments of, of carrying and, and labor on their behalf? Searching, praying. This is not quick work. It's not easy work. Tyler Staten, in, in the book, chapter 7 of this book that we're reading together, 
suggests that, that in the same way that this woman's sweeping and cleaning and searching is tedious, right, we might also find the work of loving and praying for those who are lost to be slow and unglamorous work. Maybe at times thankless work. And he says, for that reason, he says, almost everyone I know has low stamina in praying for the lost. Right? This kind of prayer, maybe more than any other, requires perseverance. It requires resolve. And I think the only way for that resolve and that perseverance to, to be sustained is to, to know and believe in the incredible value of the thing we're searching for, we're longing for. Right? We, we need our hearts to be capable of anticipating the joy that comes with finding even one of them, Jesus says. So that leads us to this week's practice in prayer. And, and what I want you to consider doing in the next, the next week is first to invite the Holy Spirit to help you see all the people in your life. People at your house, people in our church, people in our schools, people in our neighborhoods. And to ask the Spirit to help align your value, your estimation of their worth with the way God sees them, with the way God notices them. Right? When someone matters to us, it motivates us to pray. So I want you to think, who might God be inviting you to notice? It could be someone you love deeply and, and, and you've You've experienced great grief and difficulty in, in seeing the lostness in their life. But it also might be someone that you've kind of ruled out, you've counted out. Someone you assume has no awareness or desire to be in relationship with God. But maybe God is trying to get your attention to move toward them. To share a table with them. To get close to them. So I want you to take just a moment. We'll just, we'll just take a few moments this morning and imagine, are there, are there you know, one, maybe two, or three at the most faces, people that come to mind? That God is drawing your attention to pursue and to pray for. And as you, as you think about who those few people might be, also think about what could be a concrete marker to help prompt you to pray for them. If it's a neighbor, maybe you know you're going to walk by their house this week, and every time you do that, you can pray for them. Maybe if it's a colleague at work, every time you go past their cubicle or their door, you can pray for them. Maybe if it's a friend or a family member who's far away, you can put a silver coin, you could put a you could put a nickel in your pocket, and every time you feel that coin, you could remember to pray for their recovery. Maybe you set an alarm on your phone. Whatever, whatever will help you stay persistent in praying for that person. And as you pray, 
Also pray that your love for this person, that your value for this person, that your joy for this person would increase so that, that it would come to match the heart of Jesus. Let me pray for us as we endeavor to do that. Lord, if, if we belong to you today, it's only because in your great compassion you found us in our lost places and you continue to find us and call us by name back from those places. In the same way, Lord, help us to see the great joy, the great love you have for everyone you have made. Pray these things in your name. Amen.